Dear Father, you're doing an amazing work in this small church, Father. I see it every day with the hearts of those I talk to, men and women walking with you, hearing from you. Oh, in some cases, Father, wrestling with you, as we all do from time to time. But, Father, you're here, your spirit is active amongst us, and you're clearly at work doing things as you prefer and as you desire. And Father, what more could we ask for than what we would be uh, attended to by you? As you say in your word, who is man that you concern yourself with him? And yet, Father, here you are working with us. And what a blessing it is. We thank you, Father, for that ministry by your spirit and in your word, the, the attentiveness you have given to each member of this church over so many years. And your desire to speak to us personally about important matters, eternal matters. And you're not doing it just here, Father. You're doing it in your church throughout the world. And yet, this morning, Father, we can know that as we gather in your name too and, and, and more among us, that you have been present and are present here speaking to us this morning. So I, I ask, Lord, as we turn to your word and as I choose, endeavor to speak it, that you would choose to speak through me this morning and your words would come out one way or the other whether you cause my mouth to speak them or you simply cause the ears that hear to know them, one way or the other, Father, let it be your word. And, Father, I pray that those who do hear, both in this room and elsewhere, uh, would give heed to what you say, that we would be doers of the word, that we would rather know the truth than be right. That is to say that we'd rather do as you will rather than we will. Let your word have that power and that effect in our hearts so that we might conform to the image of your Son and please you in all respects. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we're in chapter 19 of Judges. This is now entering the final part of the book that we've been studying since July of last year. In case you haven't kept count, I went back and looked this week. So we've been in Judges not quite a year, not you know, a little short of a year, but it's taken us a while, as you know, to get through this book. And we've reached the last period of the book now, the final episode recorded by Samuel. Once again, we've been involved now in this review of Israel's culture and how it deteriorated in the years after Joshua brought them into the land. And the review is done by Samuel through a series of incidents, recording three separate incidents that for Samuel sort of typify what was happening in this period of history in Israel. We just finished the first of those incidents last time we taught. That was the, the incident that covered chapters 17 and 18. And in those chapters we learned how idolatry was introduced into Israel at the hands of an Ephraimite and the tribe of Dan. Now we still have two incidents left to examine. The next three chapters, chapters 19 through 21, they cover the second incident. So the last part of the book of Judges is incident number two. And the third of the three incidents, I've said before, it's not even found in this book. It's actually the book of Ruth. So the book of Ruth, also written by Samuel, is in a sense the epilogue for the book of Judges. And it's separated in our canon of scripture, but it's really a continuous story. But first, we have to do this second incident, as I call it, the one found in chapters 19 through 21. This is a story of civil war. In Israel, It's the climactic account in the book, actually. Like our first incident, the timing of this story does not follow from prior chapters. Don't think in terms of chronological sequence here. In fact, the events of chapters 19 and 21 actually happened before the events of chapters 17 and 18. So we're actually going back further in time over the period of Judges. That might beg a question for you at this point. You might say, well, why does Samuel leave this story then for the end if it's actually an event that happened earlier? Well... In a word, the answer is shame. He's organized these accounts to create a sense with you and I 
of the growing shame and depravity and self-destruction that's going on in this culture. He's moving the narrative, in other words, from bad to worse. So as to emphasize it. And in so doing, he's creating a growing sense of dread among anyone who has any hopes at all for better things among God's people. I mean, if you're a cheerleader for Israel, if you have support for God's people in that sense, you're not liking where the story is going because it's just getting worse and worse. And that leads to the question, what's going to save this group of people from themselves? And as you may know, the answer comes in Ruth. But first, we have to get through the climactic part of this account, beginning chapter 19. Let's go there now. Verse 1. Now it came about in those days, when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for a period of four months. Then... Her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. So the opening refrain of this passage in chapter 19 is one we've seen before. This is Samuel's way of highlighting really the source of all of the trouble in Israel. That refrain of there was no king in those days. Now the days he's speaking about, of course, are the days of judges. This is the time in which you see Israel ruled by judges. But more specifically, this story appears to have taken place not long after Israel entered into the land under Joshua. In fact, in chapter 20, when we get there later, it'll introduce a man by the name of Phinehas, who is the grandson of Joshua. So this story takes place just a generation after Joshua, which is similar to the last incident. The last incident we studied hinged around the man who was Moses' grandson. So you have Moses' grandson in the first incident. You have Joshua's grandson now, which is to say the events that you're seeing happened so soon after they entered the land, you realize just how fast Israel began to depart from what they had previously known. And therefore, these are the days early in the period of Judges. And therefore, when he says... There is an absence of a king. That is simply shorthand from Samuel for Israel's rejection of the Lord himself. These people, in other words, are living as if they have no king. But friends, they do have a king. Who is their king? The Lord. They live in a theocracy. The Lord set himself up as king. He gave them a law and then he gave them judges to govern them. But they live as if there is no king. And obviously it's also looking forward to the fact that there's no human king either. But it's not true to say they had none. That's what Samuel wants them to remember. And the story that follows, like the one that preceded it, reveals what happens when God's people fail to acknowledge the Lord's sovereign authority in their life. What happens when you live like there is no king, that is to say no God? This is a story of moral deterioration, social chaos, and political anarchy. It reflects the worst of human nature, which emerges from the hearts of a people who really only recently were delivered from bondage by God. And therefore it serves as Samuel's closing argument for why Israel is, frankly, beyond saving itself. There, there is really no human hope for these people. It's beyond the reach of human judges. It's beyond even the reach of human kings. Who's going to save them? And as with our last incident, this one also begins in a familiar way with a Levite who lives in Ephraim. Remember, that's the same way we started the last of these incidents. And that's no coincidence. 
It's no coincidence that the trouble for Israel once again is beginning with the tribe at the center of the action in the nation. Ephraim, first of all, is the most populous tribe in the nation of Israel. And as such, that tribe serves as a barometer for what's going on in the entire nation. You could say, as Ephraim goes, so goes this nation. And then secondly, Levites were custodians of Israel's moral and religious compass. So if the priests of the nation, who are supposed to safeguard the people from sin and encourage them into holiness, if they're sinning, what does that say about the rest of the nation? They're supposed to set the bar. They're supposed to give the people an ideal to model themselves after, to serve God through. And yet you see now in these two incidents, the sin of the nation is really starting with people who should know better. And so in just the very first verse of the chapter, look what you find. You find a Levite living with no regard for the commandments of God. Now how do I say that? Well, first of all, he's not living in a place designated for Levites. So he's living off the reservation, so to speak. Secondly, it says he's practicing what was a socially acceptable form of adultery. Taking a concubine. A concubine is just a female servant or slave who was also granted the privileges of a wife, though they had a lesser status in the household compared to a free wife. And in this period of history, concubines were tolerated within society, but friends, the practice was always sinful in God's sight. He never proved it. It was always exactly what it appears to be, adultery. But it was practiced by a Levite. The fact that Israel's priestly tribe is engaging in sin to the same degree as the rest of the culture goes a long way to explaining why these people are so unholy. God's word tells us that godly leadership among God's people is an important means to the goal of holiness for all men and women within the people of God. So everyone is responsible for his or her own sin. No one's going to blame another person for their sin if they stand before the Lord in that way. But it is also true that leaders can influence us for better or for worse in the body of Christ. And when we are led by men and women with godly character who are devoted to God's word, well then you're in the best possible place to obey as well. It doesn't guarantee it, but you have everything going your way. But conversely, friends, when our leaders are corrupt, when they are lazy, when they're haphazard with handling of God's word, then you know when we work under their tutelage, we're swimming upstream, as it were, because we're trying to seek holiness, dragging an anchor rather than a sail. Now, you can still get there on your own. Don't let anyone ever say that because they had a bad pastor or teacher that they're not accountable for their own sin. But nevertheless, there's no denying the influence of leadership. That's why the Bible puts such high, unrelenting standards on those who lead us in the body of Christ. And it's these two stories showing us that the Levites of Israel are leading their nation into sin rather than away from it. So, let's go back to the story. You have the sin of this Levite. And it begins to compound upon itself because at some point in their marriage, this concubine decides to leave her husband. In fact, in verse 2, the text says she played the harlot, which I'm sure you understand means she committed adultery in some form on her husband. Which is really ironic, isn't it? I mean, you consider how he committed adultery on his first wife in marrying this concubine, and now she's doing the very same thing back on him. Neither is right, of course. Sin always begets more sin. But as a result of her actions, an argument must have ensued which led the woman to leave her husband and go back to her father's house. Josephus, who is the Jewish historian of ancient times, he offered his commentary on this passage, which would have been based on rabbinical teaching of the day, and it goes like this. Josephus says, Now he, referring to the Levite, was very fond of his wife, the concubine, and overcome with her beauty. But he was unhappy in this, that he did not meet with the like return of affection from her, for she was averse to him, which did more inflame his passion for her. 
so that they quarreled one with another perpetually. And at last the woman was so disgusted at these quarrels that she left her husband and went to her parents in the fourth month. Well, that's his commentary. Take it for what it's worth. Now, in the law given to Israel, an unfaithful wife was to be stoned. It was a death penalty under the law for unfaithfulness. And the Levites were supposed to be a model for the nation. This man, a Levite, should have been the one among anyone in Israel to have known that and to have expected to carry out that penalty as the law required. But instead of stoning her, this Levite pursues her. Now we're told he intends to speak with her tenderly because he wants to win her back, but you're going to see later in the story that he has less compassionate intentions than may appear here. She is his possession, and first and foremost, he wants his property back. But he comes to the father's house, the father-in-law in this case, riding a donkey, towing another with him, which would indicate he has an expectation that she's going to go back with him. He's got two donkeys so they each can ride home. And the father of the bride is happy to see the Levite because he's probably happy to see the reconciliation is going to happen, I assume. Which, again, shows us that this people are not living with concern for the covenant that they have with the Lord because the father should have been just as equally disgusted with his daughter as the husband should have been for the same reason. Under the law, she was sinning. Now, here the story gets interesting at this point. The man stays with the father-in-law, it says, for three days, eating and drinking, as if this was like a family reunion, like it's a party. The celebration is entirely out of keeping with the circumstances of what's going on. This woman has committed adultery, a death penalty offense in their culture. She's disrespected her husband by abandoning the home. And now it appears that everyone who's involved in this situation is just overlooking the sin that has brought about this moment. And instead, they're having a party. Now certainly, friends, the Lord has a heart of mercy and forgiveness for His people. And we can still find opportunity to celebrate amongst one another, even in spite of the fact that we all bring sin. I mean, it's not to say that we just are always going to be looking for judgment. That's not my point. But friends, in Scripture it's very clear. The Lord grants mercy to whom? To a repentant heart. And forgiveness to whom? To those who love Him and therefore obey Him. In other words, He's not beyond showing forgiveness. Far from it. He has infinite forgiveness. But it comes under certain circumstances. He doesn't celebrate our imperfections He certainly doesn't give us license to do the same, does he? This threesome is in the midst of ignoring their collective sin and living as if the Lord and his law doesn't even exist. That's not a reason for celebration. That's a recipe for serious consequences. And it starts to show next in the story. Verse 5. Now on the fourth day, they got up early in the morning and he prepared to go. And the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may go. So both of them sat down and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Please, be willing to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. Then the man arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him, so that he spent the night there again. On the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning, and the girl's father said, Please, sustain yourself, and wait until afternoon. So both of them ate. When the man arose to go along with his concubine and servant, the father-in-law, the girl's father said to him, Behold, now the day is drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here that your heart may be merry. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey so that you may go home. You see where that's going, right? But the man was not willing to spend the night, so he arose and departed and came to a place opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. And there was with him a pair of saddled donkeys His concubine also was with him. So this is sort of an interesting 
encounter. It's, it's strange in a sense that so much text is being devoted to this back and forth over stay. No, I've got to go. No, stay longer. Oh, I've got to go. And there's obviously a purpose. The concubine's father is just especially hospitable to his guest, and this would be absolutely what you'd expect. It was the honorable thing to do in the day. The lavish hospitality that you extended to your guest is a way of honoring them. It was expected to a certain degree, certainly. In this day and age, hotels were few and far between, if not entirely non-existent. So if you're a traveler moving around from town to town, you expected to gain accommodation in the homes of strangers, who themselves were expected to receive a stranger with kindness. It was the custom of the day. In fact, it was such a custom that if you did not provide that kind of accommodation, it was a tremendous source of dishonor upon you, and it could even result in hostility. You may remember in the Gospels when Jesus is trying to move through Samaria and he calls ahead to find a place to stay and he's refused in Samaria an opportunity to stay. And when the disciples hear that that's what's been done to him, what do they say? They ask him, should we call down fire from heaven against these people? Which in and itself raises questions about what were they thinking. But nevertheless, it shows you what they thought about that dishonor. So at first in the story, the father's hospitality just proceeds as expected. But after about three days... This insistence for more eating and drinking, it becomes more of a nuisance to the husband than it does an honor. And after three days, he's like, you know, this has been nice, but I'm kind of done with this. And then the father-in-law convinces him, oh no, stay again. But you notice how he does it? He delays his departure. And then as the day wears out and it gets late, then he says, oh, now that you've waited this long, you might as well stay the night. And that works for one night. Another night, but into the fifth day, now it's the husband who's being forced to show respect by accepting a hospitality that's truly beyond anything helpful. And after five days, he's ready to leave one way or another. And as I said, this whole scene leaves us wondering, why does this matter to the story? And we can piece it together if we notice a few of the details particularly. First, notice that all the celebration takes place between the men only. You notice? The only time the woman's ever mentioned the concubine is the very end of that passage, verse 10. But in verse 6, the text refers to both of them eating and drinking, referring only to the two men. So this is only two guys celebrating. So it appears what's going on is the father-in-law is the one desiring to extend the visit, certainly not the daughter, and that he's doing it primarily for himself. He is the beneficiary of all of this delay, the father in this house. What Samuel is trying to communicate to us by relating this encounter is the underlying cause for the daughter's disobedience and sin against her husband. And do you see it? The daughter committed unfaithfulness against her husband, right? And when he discovered her sin, according to Josephus, there was anger, there was contention in the home, as you might expect, right? I mean, wouldn't you naturally expect a lot of hard words to be exchanged once someone discovers another person's unfaithfulness, right? But notice, rather than face up to her mistake, what does she do? Does she repent? Does she accept the judgment of her husband? In other words, does she own up to it and live under the constraints that he might put on her at that point or any such thing? No, what does she do? She runs away. And where does she run? She runs into the loving, waiting arms of her father. How did she know she would be received so gladly by her father, having just committed the offense of adultery, which would normally require that she be put to death. How did she know her dad wouldn't do that? Matthew Henry said this, She went away from her husband, and, which was not fair, was received and entertained at her father's house. 
Had her husband turned her out of doors unjustly, well then her father ought to have pitied her affection. But when she treacherously departed from her husband to embrace the bosom of a stranger, her father ought not to have countenanced her sin. Perhaps she would not have violated her duty to her husband if she had not known all too well that she would be kindly received by her father. Children's ruin is often owed to a parent's indulgence. All of this non-stop eating and drinking is simply evidence of the father's character, his inability to say no, his inability to set limits, either for himself or, it appears, for his daughter. The Lord commands parents in his word to strive to raise obedient, respectful, compliant children. And of course, we can't produce perfect kids. That's not the expectation of Scripture. And we aren't to blame when our adult children go off and do as they prefer. But as much as we can, for as long as they live in our homes, we are to seek to mold their character and their behavior toward godliness. And friends, that requires not just teaching them principles of godliness from God's Word, not just modeling it in our own lives, but it also means contending with their sin when they disobey. Not turning a blind eye to their mistakes. Bringing meaningful discipline when necessary and encouraging them to repent. But this father has evidently failed to do those things. And Samuel seems to be placing a measure of blame at his feet by relating this encounter in such a way that you begin to get a little window into the soul of this man and you start to notice this guy just can't seem to say no. There's not enough party for him. There's not enough eating for him. There's not enough drinking for him. He is so consciously determined to get his flesh fed in that respect that he puts his family in grave danger. And as the story plays out, the sins of this father are going to rest squarely on his daughter in a most tragic way. They've already begun. It's no coincidence, by the way, that in Paul's list in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when he lists all the sins that characterize the society of our last days, if you know the passage I'm talking about, one of the sins that he lists in this long litany of what will characterize the last days on earth, one of those sins is disobeying parents. Listen to the list, 2 Timothy 3.1. He says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Now notice what else goes around that. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. It never fails to amaze me that in a list like that, disobedient to parents falls right in the middle. God's word says, disobedient child is on a par with reviling. A disobedient child is on a par with hating good. A disobedient child is on a par with treachery or unholiness. And Paul's point is not to condemn the child, it's to condemn the parent. We're not talking about full-grown adults that disobey parents, we're talking about a society in which young children are allowed to do whatever they want. In general, I don't know that our culture agrees that having a child that won't do what you tell them to do it, when you tell them to do it, is so bad. How many of you have had encountered parents who would tell you that's just the norm? That's what kids are like. Friends, that's a lie. I'm not calling them liars. I'm saying that thought is contrary to God's word. You have a four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, ten-year-old. They'll only do what a parent allows them to do. You are bigger, stronger. You know better. You have all the money. You have all the power and authority in that home. There is nothing a child of that age can do except that you allow it. Now, when they're 15, 16, 17, I know, then it changes. But by that point, it's too late mostly anyway. 
But when they're young, if they're disobedient, it reflects only on one person and not them. Because they will be disobedient by their nature. This woman is about to be the victim of a horrible incident later in this chapter, which is indirectly the result of a father's indulgence. And right now, you're already seeing that indulgence at work as the father tries to take every last ounce of of opportunity to celebrate with this man. Instead of doing what he should have done right away, which is have told his daughter, get out of my house, go back to your husband where you belong, and reconcile with him. Ask him to forgive you. So here we are now on the afternoon of the fifth day, and this is the consequence of all of this indulgence. On the afternoon of the fifth day, this husband, who's so fed up trying to appease the father and get on with life, says, you know what, I've just got to go now, because I'll never break free from this if I keep giving in. And so in verse 10, he finally departs. But that's where the trouble begins, because the timing of his departure is going to be an incredibly troublesome thing for a traveling party in that time. In this day, in this time of history, in fact, it's still true today in this part of the world, it's incredibly dangerous to travel through the wilderness at night. I remember when I've traveled and done teaching in other places in in the world, for example, on the African continent, one of the things they tell you from the get-go is do not be out after night. Don't travel at night. Don't be out in a car at night. Get in, be in at night, and don't go out again. It's just not safe. Bad guys, and in this day, wild animals, anything like that, could come along and prey on night travelers. So it was incredibly important that you stay in a safe place overnight. Now, the typical means of conveyance, though, in that day was not a car, obviously. It's by foot. Maybe a donkey, but that's slow, too. So you had to plan your trip carefully to ensure that you would arrive at a city before nightfall. And cities are spread out. You have to know how long it's going to take to get there. And so if you leave late on a given day from one city, that's a very risky move because you're betting that you can get the distance required to the next city before nightfall. And the father-in-law, as you see, is depending on the late time of day as a means of forcing the husband to stay later because he knows the same problem. Well, it's a sign of the husband's frustration that he goes anyway at this late hour. So he finds himself hurrying to get into a town. The first town they're going to reach, we hear, is Jabus, which is the ancient name of Jerusalem. If you want to get a sense of distance here, Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jabus, or current-day Jerusalem. So by the average speed of walking, that's about two hours. So you have about a two-hour walk as you leave this guy's house to get to the next town where they could spend the night. And as they reach Jabus, the servant of the husband who's traveling with him, he makes the logical suggestion, hey, here's the town, it's almost nightfall, let's stop. Verse 19. When they were near Jabus, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, please come and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. However, his master said to him, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gilbeah. He said to his servant, Come and let us approach one of these places, and we will spend the night in Gebeah or Ramah. So they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gebeah, and when they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. So in that day, Jerusalem was not a Jewish town, as you can tell. It was a Jebusite stronghold, a Canaanite stronghold. In fact, it didn't become Jewish until David conquered it many years later. So this was not the ideal stopping point if you were Hebrew. So the husband, as he looks at the situation, he says, we're not going to stay in this town, this isn't safe. So we're going to keep moving. What he hopes to do is get to another Jewish town, 
called Gilbea, or maybe to Ramah. Gilbea is another three miles north, which means another hour's walk from where they are now. Ramah would have been another 40 minutes walk after that. So he's hoping that either in the next hour to hour 40, they can get into one of these towns. But as you hear, it's already late and the sun is setting. So that means their situation is particularly dire at this point. They've got to get to Gilbea and find a place that will take them in before dark. And many of these towns had walls and gates and they closed up at night. And you didn't get the gate open, I don't care how hard you pounded on it. So if you didn't get in before they closed the gate, you're out of luck. So it's a real stress here. There's real jeopardy. And as you heard, they come upon Gebeah just as the sun is setting. So they have no choice now. They've got to go into Gebeah. And as it turns out, when they get into the city, no one gives them accommodation, which is a shocking thing all of its own. They have to sleep, it says, in the open square. Now, Gebeah is a town in the territory of Benjamin. And later, as I said, it becomes the hometown of King Saul. There's an interesting little footnote to all of the story here because we just left Bethlehem, the home of King David. And we're going into Gilbeah, the hometown of Saul. And Samuel, of course, is looking forward to the days of the kings. He's alive in the days of the kings, so he knows what's coming. It's as if he's juxtaposing these two towns in the narrative just to foreshadow the lives of these two kings. Because in the one town you had party and celebration, and I don't want to give it away, but you're going to have something very different in Gilbeah, which seems to reflect the two kings. Each had problems, but one was far more severe than the other. In this case... Gebeah's problem is the utter lack of hospitality in accommodating their fellow Israelites and the depravity of the people that you'll discover next week. And I think you have a difficulty understanding just how dishonorable it was that they would refuse accommodation for a traveling party. In this day, that is a severe departure from custom. It deserved condemnation. And so as they come into the city and we hear this result, we're starting to worry for them, as we should. And what's worse, this man who's come in with his concubine, remember, he's a Levite. And the scriptures had commanded Israel to be especially kind in their treatment of this particular tribe. Now, the Levites didn't have any land of their own. They were dependent on the largesse of those in the the nation. Other tribes would contribute to their welfare. They lived in cities that were designated for them. They had no inheritance of their own. And so when you saw one of these guys coming, the expectation was Israel would go out of their way to take care of them, to support them. But in this case, they refused accommodation for them. I wonder if the town wasn't a little afraid to open up their homes and expose their sinful lifestyles to a religious leader of their day. I mean, they don't know who this guy is. They don't know what his intent is. And as we're about to see, the situation gets much, much worse. This town's got a very dark secret that apparently was not widely understood because if it had been, they never would have stopped there. And this poor family is about to discover the dark secret of this city in a quite perverse way. And why are they in this situation? Well... It's a chain of events, but it goes back to the daughter, which goes back to the father. I mean, the indulgent father's nature led to a daughter who did what she did. And then you have the husband's rash decision-making that left them in this place of jeopardy as he runs out at the late part of the day. And what follows is going to bring a horrible death to this concubine, and as a result, the start of a civil war in Israel. Think back to all the ingredients in this story. All the things that have combined to create this stew of sin among the people. You have religious leaders failing to follow and model the rule of God's law. They sin themselves, forgetting their place. They do not hold those accountable who are under their charge. And then you have the daughter, which represents the children who rebel and who run from authority. They are products of indulgent parents who give license for sin. They're walking in paths of self-destruction. We can see that. 
And then around it all you have a culture that has ceased caring for those who provide them ministerial guidance. There's not a, a sense of hospitality anymore within the culture. They fear religious authorities perhaps. Ultimately, we're going to discover that they're harboring such extreme depravity in their midst that it's going to eat them from inside. I want you to notice how many of the things I just mentioned have reasserted themselves in our culture today. Didn't that list sound incredibly contemporary? Ask yourselves, how long this situation in Israel can continue before something has to change or the culture itself will disintegrate? And let's all ask if, in our own society, if we aren't at least at some level contributing to some of the same problems. Or if we aren't, at least let's reflect on how we can be prayerfully engaged to, to change it, if God would permit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do ask, Lord, that you would concern us with the things around us that might contribute to a society and to a culture, whether in the church or outside the church, that do not please you. We can't fix people's problems, Father. We're not called upon to judge others' sin. But we certainly can be better at um, holding those under our charge accountable, at honoring those who minister to us, of expecting high standards among those who teach us, and so many of the other things we've heard this morning. Father, let us have those goals in mind. Let us not ever set them aside or compromise on those things. The story of Israel in the time of Judges is nothing if not a warning sign. The signs were clear in their day, and perhaps they're clear in ours as well. But just as they had a solution found only in Christ, so do we. Christ in us, Christ through us to the world who needs to know him. Father, I pray that we'd have that heart as well. That ultimately our response to the sin of our lives and to others' lives would simply be to, to preach Christ to ourselves and others. To live according to his word. To look forward to his return. Thank you, Father, for that reminder. and Help us, Father, be those who can help others with the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.